Well, what a great pleasure it is to welcome a Michigan State <laughs> University icon, Dennis Martell, back to the MSU Today microphones. Dennis, great to see you as always. Oh, it's great to see you, Russ. I mean, over the years we've had a few of these, and it's always enjoyable to come and see you. I, as I tell people, you are kind of the epitome of the the uh, happy Spartan who welcomes people, cares about people, and really wants to know about what's happening on campus. So it's always a pleasure. Well, I appreciate that. And it's a little bittersweet this time because yeah. you're going to call it a career <laughs> this summer. Uh, and I should tell people your health promotion is your field. You're a national leader and trailblazer in these health promotion issues, particularly when it comes to college students. But as you kind of evolve and, and you know, retire, just reflect a bit on the whole thing. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I, I'd love to say that I've made some critical decisions in my life that brought me to this point, but I've kind of let life happen. You know, as, a, as an individual who was, uh, had a congenital disabilities, you know, I spent a lot of time in the hospitals and a lot of time in corrective situations with speech therapy and some surgeries and stuff. So I got to watch people a lot. You know, I, I didn't really interact a lot. I watched people a lot. And I didn't know where my life was going. I remember in ninth grade, I saw a report that said, uh, this Dennis Martell will not go very far because of his disabilities. And I kind of took that as a challenge, and I decided, yeah, I think I'm going to do some things in life. But I didn't really make any crit critical decisions. You know, after after uh, high school, I decided to go to a community college, you know, go give it community college, and went there for a year. And then I followed a friend up to SUMI College, which is now Finlandia University in the Keweenaw. And uh, I spent some time, I, I got my associate there, and you know, Russ, I, I uh, was in athletic training. And so the coach there after I graduated said, you should go to Northern Michigan University. I'll get a hold of the, the team there and you can be athletic, you know, uh, a trainer. So I said, yeah, that sounds good. I'll go there. Went there and the first day, you know, they introduced me and here uh, in their room is Steve Mariucci. You know, it was the... Uh, it was the 1977, they won the National Championship Division Two, and then I had classes with a guy by the name of Tom Izzo <laughs> and Steve Mariucci, you know, not knowing, you know, I'm right. Northern, so <laughs> I graduated Northern, and then I got my first job. I was the Upper Peninsula Director for United Cerebral Palsy, the Kenya Michigan Rehab Foundation, and the Arthritis Foundation at 23, and I did it for three years, traveled to UP, and then I was downstate, uh, Russ, and I saw this speech about somebody about a master's degree in health education at Central. I said, well, maybe that's where I should go. Went down there, did a one-year uh, master's, and uh, believe it or not, Russ, I was uh, sitting uh, back on the last day of class, and I said, I'm going to go watch a movie. So I went to watch a movie, and it was Meatballs with Bill Murray, you know, and it's about summer camp. So I said, you know what? I'm walking through campus the next day, and there's a summer camp program going on there. So I walk in there, and I see a place near Central because I need to finish my thesis, Russ. And it was Mystic Lake YMCA Camp, uh, Lansing YMCA. So I went there, and I decided uh, I turned down a full ride to University of Toledo to do my research. I was working with Bill Masters of Masters and Johnson's and some research on sexuality and disability. So I went to this camp, and he said, I'm just going to do this for a few years, and I... I, you know, I retired. I, uh, uh, I volunteered my time there, taught kids how to ride, shovel manure, did all the stuff that I thought, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the fun things in life. And then, but I was still working with U of M. 
with Ted and Sandra Colon going around the nation talking about sexuality and cosmetic disabilities and how they influence people's development. And I came down to East Lansing and I did a speech and in the audience were three professors from MSU who came up and said, hey, how would you like to come to MSU and get your PhD? You can teach sexuality here. So I said, yeah, it sounds like a good deal. And that was 1985, you know. But I came down here and at Central, I was working with uh, uh, disability rights there. And so uh, they said, you should come down here and meet Judy Gentili. She's a director of uh, Office of Programs for Handicapper Students. So I decided to come down here and I mean, I still hadn't made my decision, and I came down here and walked into the office in this building, Russ, in the Commerce Building in 1985, and uh, I ran into a person by the name of Dorothy Melbrook, who was actually the secretary there. To make a long story short, I met with Judy Gentile, and I went back to camp, and I finished the summer out, and I had this incident where I came upon a uh, an accident. I was the first one at this accident in the corner of... Uh, uh, U.S. 10 and uh, 50, and uh, uh, several deceased people at the uh, at the accident. It was terrible, traumatic, and uh, I had to call, uh, crawl into a car and pull a young boy out that eventually passed away. And you know, I went. That was very traumatic. And I went through the summer and came down here in MSU and started my job. I was a three-quarter time assistant teaching sexuality and working for Judy and Tilly and. One of the first things I had to do was write an article about uh, the passing of the secretary. And uh, I'm sitting there writing the article and said that uh, Dorothy Milbrook and her husband and two grandkids passed away on, at the date uh, on the corner of uh, US 10 and 50. And it hit me that I had been there. And it kind of, like I said, I've never really made a critical decision, but I knew I needed to be here because I could give the Milbrooks some closure on all that, Russ. But then, you know, uh, um, I got into, uh, as uh, several different administrators say, I'm either a radical, an activist, or an advocate. I don't know, Russ. <laughs> All three together, yeah. And, you know, and I got into disability rights, and, you know, and I got to meet a lot of the uh, individuals here. did a lot of presentations to board of trustees and uh, ran for the president of COGS, became the COGS president, you know, for three years. Under Under that administration, we brought in... Uh, health insurance for grad students. We brought in uh, tuition waivers for students. We took on the governor. You know, I got to be involved, sat in the board of trustees, uh, got to know Jack Breslin. You know, I think about my my history here, Russ, and I think about the phenomenal people I have been involved with. Given the chance to do health promotion, you know, I got my second master's here and I got my PhD here, and, you know, I love this place, but it gave me the opportunity to look at the culture gave me an opportunity to look at the environment. And uh, so uh, when I was offered the job of health promotion, I thought, you know what, I'm going to move from academia over to here to see if I can help change the culture. You know, and that's kind of where I've been for the last 30 years, Russ, <laughs> involved right. in everything. So. Well, and it's kind of a, a all-encompassing word. How do you define health promotion? And I understand the def definition is evolving. Yeah, you know, it's, it's evolving. And, and if I can leave uh, the people of this community and MSU anything, it's a simple definition of health. You know, when I was here as a Ph.D. student, I got to be in a group of anthroposophers 
their anthropological study of philosophy. Uh, you know, the cyclotron inventor, other folks were involved. And what it does is takes, it distills words down to their meaning, okay? It's like taking the dogmas and rights off religion to the basic, which is about love. So, long story short, health is really the capacity you have at any given time to be in this world, to interact with the world, and give back to the world. Health is a measure of capacity. And what is capacity? Capacity is the ability or skills and energy to do something, see something, or experience something. And it's really, health is a measure of capacity. And people think, you know, <laughs> I taught this class, uh, Russ, called Go to Health for 20 years here. <laughs> yeah. Freshman seminar class. And they, students, hated me after that first session because I'd say, what is health? And they go, well, well, you know, it's it's eating five vegetables a day and cranking, you know, the barbells. And no, no, that's not health. Well, what is it, Dennis? I said, it's about capacity. I mean, you think about it. if you measure your blood pressure, it measures the capacity of your blood in your body. If you do a, an assessment of uh, oh, uh, mental energy, it's about the capacity of your mind. It's about capacity. It's really simple. So if you replace the word health in the next couple of weeks as you're talking to people, say capacity because it is about the capacity. And health is very fluid. It's not a, it's not a steady state. Your health, your capacity in one moment could be different than the next. And what does health give you? Uh, the Fetger Institute over in um, Kalamazoo at Parker Palmer and all these different people, and I got to be involved with it, Rustin. The whole thing, Bill Moyer put it on, the old Bill Moyer uh, put it on, and they, the only question he asked was, what is the meaning of health? And we sat there for two hours, and really what it came down to was freedom. There's a great billboard on the way to Charlotte. You know, I live in a part of it, and I go to Charlotte, it's a great billboard, and it says, the ultimate freedom, health. Because what does capacity give you? When you have capacity to think, capacity to move, capacity to be in the environment, capacity with being whatever uh, sexual orientation you want or gender you want, when you have that capacity, you have freedom. But understand, there are two things Americans take for granted all the time, health and freedom. They don't know what they are till they lose them, and then they fight like heck to get them back. Some of the healthiest people I know, Russ, I used to be a skydiver. Can you believe that? I used to jump <laughs> yes. out of perfectly good airplanes. <laughs> and I had a friend who went with me, and his chute didn't open all the way, and he came down, and, and he was paralyzed from the waist down. And uh, worked with him for a while, and he at one point told me, he said, I think I'm the healthiest person by your definition, Dennis, than anyone here because because of my accident, I took stock of my capacities. I understand what I can do. I know I lost some of that freedom, but now at, in my new sense of using a chair and everything else, I know what my freedoms are and I work for them and I have that capacity. So you can be, if you lose freedom, like sometimes people come to me and say, uh, you know, I did six hours in the gym today. And I say, you do six hours every day? Oh, I have to. I say, what do you mean you have to? I have to be six hours in the gym. Well, that's limiting your freedom. That's really not, in my book, a healthy behavior when you feel like you have to do something. Like, I'll go to lunch, Russ, <laughs> with other health promotion people and stuff or with administrators, and I'll order a nice big old cheeseburger. Greasiest thing I can find. And they'll say, 
how can you eat that cheeseburger? I said, how can I not? I love it. It's about freedom. It's about balance. It's not about I'm going to uh, do this or that, you know, and this whole concept of BMI. You know, being, you know what BMI stands for, Russ? Basically made up index. <laughs> it doesn't stand for anything. It's a public thing. So health promotion is about increasing the capacity, supporting the capacity, and restoring the capacity of individuals. So I think of my, myself as a, a capacity builder. And you can do that in so many ways. Wow, that's that's such a great answer, Dennis. And I would imagine you're very pleased that mental health is so much more in the equation now because that almost used to be a separate thing off to the side in the closet and our health was only our physical health. I'm guessing you're, that's progress in your mind. Absolutely. You know, and, and we it used to be a huge stigma and nobody really wanted to talk about it. It's kind of like, you know, the when we started the food bank in the 1990s, and everyone thought college students, they have all kinds of money. What do, what do they know? They're not food insecure. Well, we didn't realize that some of these college students are mentally insecure in a sense. Their capacity was limited, and it can be limited by all kinds of factors. You know, In the beginning, you know, some of the administrators here uh, at MSU didn't want to talk about mental health or put any time into it. But it's really important because this generation has changed. This generation has changed so much uh, from when I started. This generation now does not how does not know how to deal with fear or threats. And we know that this culture, this division that we have in this country today is keeps producing fear and threat. And there's a book that I was honored to write with Kim Whitty from the Com Arts Building here back in 2000 called The Health Risk Messages. It's about the EPPM, the Extended Parallel Process Model. And very quickly, Russ, what happens when you're faced with a threat? Four things happen in your mind very quickly. What is the severity of this threat? Am I susceptible to it? What is the response I can use, and do I believe in it, and can I use it? Those four things happen very quickly. Like if you're, if you're, if a rabid dog comes up to you and you see a dog that's just about to bite you, you do all that. Like this is severe. I'm probably susceptible. My response. What's my response? What can I do? Okay. Say you're, you say you have a, you know, you're a karate expert or whatever, you know, and you're faced with it. And you say, okay, do I believe that karate will work? And can I use it? But what we haven't done with this generation is equip them with the response or whether they can use it. We just keep pushing fear and threats on them. And we see all the mass shootings that are happening. And this is kind of what happens, you know, when, and especially when for people when, they're, when they have a lot of fear and threat and they don't have a response and they don't feel they can use it, they get paralyzed. And this is what happens. And even when we talk about mass shootings and, and active shooter trainings, you know, a lot of people want that type of information, but can they use it? It's like we used to use this a lot in our HIV counseling, Russ. We would have a test. We would ask people, do you think HIV is severe? And they'd answer that. Do you think you're susceptible? They would answer that. Then we'd say, do you believe condoms are a, a way to respond? They answer it, do you believe you can use condoms? And by that score, we could tell, do we need to increase the threat or do we need to increase the efficacy? You know, so if there's really high in the severity and susceptibility then uh, and they don't believe condoms work and they can't use them, we would say, let's go through it. Let's show you how it works and everything like that. But if they're really high on the condoms and they're really high on the 
you know, they can use them, but they don't think HIV is severe, but their behaviors show that they could be susceptible, then we have to increase the threat perception of it. But this uh, generation, you know, with mental health, uh, it's the stigma is no longer there, but we don't have the resources. We don't have the resources to deal with it. The other thing is parents, if there are parents listening, you know, your kid got this far uh, by using coping mechanisms. And what happens to freshmen when they get here is they go brain dead, Russ. They go brain dead. They forget all the coping mechanisms that got them this far, like, you know, everything from music to prayer to exercise. So when I address uh, parents, I say, don't forget all the coping mechanisms that got them here. And listen, you need to continue to talk to your student. Your mental health is one of the increasing challenges, but so is financial insecurity, housing insecurity, and food insecurity, basic necessities. You can't have capacity. You can't have study if you don't have those met. And Dennis, let's talk a little bit about how students have evolved over, over your time. And I think about when we first met in the late 90s, President McPherson had organized the Alcohol Action Team and in response to, let's just say, a couple very unfortunate disturbances and but that's a, an area where I think you really had a lot of impact because you stopped preaching about excessive drinking. And partly with the Bradley McHugh birthday card, you started just treating them like adults and as a health issue. You know, that's absolutely right, Russ. And you were there. So you were a witness to all of this. You know, we had the unfortunate incidences where people responded with uh, wanting to take charge and take over. And, you know, we, uh, Dr. McPherson uh, organized the action team and asked if I'd be his policy and research advisor, working with Jenny Haas and the folks from those days. And we put together a plan, and one of those plans was let's treat alcohol as a health issue, not a legal issue, not a moral issue, but a health issue. And what Dr. McPherson did, and uh, I think you and I chatted before this, that, you know, he called me on the 20th anniversary and said, Dennis, you remember those days when, you know, we would go in there and talk about alcohol? I said, yes, Peter. So we put together a plan. He moved the Office of Alcohol and Other Drugs to Olin Health Center, and we treated it as a health issue. We also wanted to do a new process called the social norms, in which we took the norms of students. You know, everyone, when freshmen come to campus, I would say in the past, because that's really changed. You know, back in the 2000, 2005, we were the number one party school in the nation, according to the Princeton Review and stuff like that, which, and it's because people had this perception, this animal house perception that everyone comes down who drinks all the time and they drink 10 or more drinks. So what we did was, let's ask the students what they do. Right, you came up with data, not right. just this. we came up with data so that it showed that, you know, the average student, when they go out, they'll drink uh, four or fewer. And so what we do is we take the norm and the behavior, do you approve of getting drunk? No, most students don't approve of getting drunk. So we take that behavior and we give it back to them. In other words, we would tell them what they do. We wouldn't tell them what to do. We would tell them what they do. And that changed the perception, and then you saw the behavior come down. But the students have changed. Students have changed significantly. Uh, you know, uh, with social media coming in, you know, we... We uh, uh, once did a kind of a, uh, a study of watching students back in the uh, late 
80s, early 90s, you know, they'd walk by Olin, and they'd be in groups and everything like that, and they'd be talking like that. And then we did this same type of little bit of study outside in uh, late 2000s uh, and in 2015, and it was like night and day rest. It was no longer the connection. It was just focused on social media. I must look like robots. The AirPods uh, and, and oh, their own yes, world. You know, yeah. and, and I do this I do this thing, Russ, where I walk from Olin over to uh, the admin building. I try to say hello to every student I see, and rarely do they look back at you. I mean, they're either they're focused. So one of the things that's happened, Russ, and I don't want anyone to misconstrue what I say is, some of the people in this generation have lost common sense. Now, once again, from an anthroposophy sense, in order to have common sense, you have to have a common awareness of the senses around you, like traffic, like the environment, like people going back and forth. A lot of students don't have that common sense. They're so focused on social media and focused into connecting or getting likes or whatever. Uh, they don't have that common sense. You have to have a sense of your environment. Right now, there's, there's a research going on that the brain is actually reconfiguring the neurotransmitters because humans need eye contact. You know, they need eye contact. That's how the brain develops, from kids to parents or whatever. They need eye contact. They're not getting that anymore. They're getting it through texting. So the brain is rewiring itself to accommodate the fact that there's no eye contact anymore. And I think that's changing behavior, Russ. Is this generation any better, any worse? No, this generation seems to care about the environment. This generation seems to care about uh, politics in a way, in the sense that they believe in the rights of people to do what they need to do, to be a gender, to be an orientation, to be left or right. They seem to believe in it. They seem to believe in that uh, us old uh, old guys screwed up the environment. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, baby boomer generation, we screwed it up and that they need to fix it up. They're, they're concerned. I mean, but look, look what's happened to MSU in the last uh, seven years. We've had uh, two men and a virus change everything. You know, we had Nasser. Most tragic, unfortunate thing to happen to these individuals. Then we have uh, COVID, three, four years of COVID, and then we have the shooting on February 13th. A lot of students and a lot of people are uh, still traumatized. Uh, some people are moving on, some are not. But, you know, we're having a mass shooting every week now, and it's uh, uh, people are uh, nervous. Before I ask you something else, sure. say more about what social norms is, because you're sure. the executive director of the National <laughs> Center. More on what that is. Yes, you know, back in 2000, uh, we did some seminal research. Doc, the late Dr. Chuck Atkins and, and Dr. Larry Hembroff, who's still retired but a good friend of mine, we, did, uh, we got a grant from the U.S. Department of Education to do celebratory research. Nobody was writing about celebratory drinking because it's a lot different than, quote, everyday drinking. Celebratory drinking, you know, there's a lot of people by religion or morals and stuff that won't necessarily drink because their religion, whatever. But everyone gets a pass on a celebration, whether it's a wedding, even a funeral, you know, uh, NCAA, St. Patrick's Day. Everyone gets a pass on those days. And those normal type of, of uh, behaviors that people would do, like, hey, let's go on a Saturday night and have a few drinks, that goes out the window. 
because when it's celebration time, there's no limit. You can drink what you want. So we did the celebratory uh, drinking research, and we found out that if you drink one type of alcohol, and you stay in one place, and you stay with friends, you're less likely to have any harm when you go out celebratory drinking. We also realized that uh, we shouldn't really uh, talk about how much people drink on celebration drinking because everyone approves of drinking more on a celebratory occasion. So uh, uh, we got that grant three years, and then uh, the, Nas the National Social Norms Institute came in. It was funded by the Anheuser-Busch Foundation. They put a $5 million grant out there. We were first, one of the first ones in MSU to get the grant. And what we are supposed to do is use the process to change the perceptions and change the behavior. And we have been the, the most successful uh, because MSU bought into it. And so over the years, we kept getting the grants. Well, in 19, or 19, 2014, we were offered the National Social Norms Center here because we were the model for the nation as well as the world for doing the social norms approach in response to alcohol and other things. And so we, uh, we acquired the National Social Norms Center, and we have 10 grantees, everyone from Florida State to University of Kansas to Georgetown to University of Hawaii, which I still want to make a site visit out there, <laughs> from Manoa, where we help them do the social norms approach. So we're kind of the gatekeeper for that, and I'm the executive director here, and even in my retirement, I'm going to stay as the executive director and, and work with uh, Michigan State University to keep changing that perception. Because we're down to a point now where on any given night, most students don't drink. Uh, most students choose not to get drunk. I mean, they have different priorities this generation. Uh, Dennis, you've had an impact in so many ways. Just some some other fond memories, or for whatever <laughs> reason, some things that are you're reflecting on particularly. Oh my gosh, Russ! You know, uh, other than meeting with you <laughs> and some of the other wonderful people in Com Arts as well as across the university, I've had the pleasure of uh, you know I spent a day with uh, with Stevie Wonder. J.J. Jackson was uh, uh, an individual here who was uh, 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 he was blind. He went for the school of the blind where uh, Magic Johnson, uh, oh, I'm not Magic, Stevie Wonder went, and Stevie Wonder came in, got to spend a day with him, got to spend a day and be the chauffeur for Jocelyn Elders, the, the former you know uh, Surgeon General who we talked about, the condom thing and everything like that. I've got a chance to you know spend with coaches, you know, I was walking, I, uh, we started the food bank, BMOT, who was the executive center to John Hanna, uh, is the one who wanted to start a food bank on campus. I happened to be the COGS president at the time, and she knew that my family had uh, also done a food bank up in the UP. And she approached me and said, Dennis, we need to start a food bank. So we started the, the food bank, and uh, I say this story because I had not met Judd Heathcote before. And uh, B came up to me and said, we're, we're going to go see Judd Heathcote because he's going to give us some money to start this food bank. And I'm walking across campus with uh, B. Mott and uh, uh, Judd's ahead of us and he's walking with Tom Izzo. And I'm walking up there and I said, Tom? He says, Dennis? <laughs> we haven't seen each other for 20, 25 years. And Judd <laughs> says, yeah, you guys know each other. And, he's, and, and so we went into Judd's office and Judd said, I don't know. I can't, I can't refuse B. Mott, especially when she's with Dennis Martell. Well, I'm going to give you some money. And so 
uh, you know, I got to uh, hang out with uh, Judd, you know, and you know, Tom, and many of the coaches, and so many people. Yeah. A lot of the players I've had in classes and stuff. So, I mean, you know, it's just, uh, it's been a phenomenal experience all the way around, you know, and, and working with the food bank, there's no other better thing in the world yeah. than to provide food security. And what we're working on now, Russ, is really to move that stigma. If you need food, it's just like financial aid. You go to a financial aid office, you come here. It's that, you know, a lot of the folks feel like they can't go to a food bank because they're not worthy, or they're people who are are less fortunate than them, you know. But when we started the food bank in 1990, 1992, we did research, you know, and I brought that research to Dr. Simon at the time and said, look it, in this research, we had 100 people who were homeless. They're, they're, they're moving from car to couches and stuff. Plus, we have all these people that are saying they're food insecure. And I give Dr. Simon a lot of credit. She said, I know we're going to get pushback from people, and we did. Like, how can college students not have money for food? They have money for beer, right? They should have money for food. But no, she said, go for, go for it. And we put the food bank together. And she did the same story that Judd did, because uh, <laughs> when she came to the 20th reunion, she said, you know, I, I I just couldn't say no. When you have B. Mott and Dennis Martell in the same room and they're both asking you for money, I mean, you got to <laughs> give it to them. So. Well, Dennis, I know you'll never really retire completely, but what what do you see as some of the challenges and opportunities for your successors and the, and the team that's still here? I think that uh, the continuing health promotion and health education needs to change for us. I mean... It's no longer the 70s, 80s, or 90s where you do health fairs and give services and give presentations. Now you need to work strategically. You need to work strategically with departments to change the environment. Because as we do the climate surveys on campus, we understand that the people are under a lot of pressure. COVID really changed the landscape, you know, and so there's a whole different landscape now. So. Health promotion, we have a, uh, a charter called the Okanagan Charter, which many of the universities, uh, it comes from Canada, which talks about changing health promotion, accepting a, a definition of health that allows you as a community to thrive. Because we all want to get to this state, which we call wellness, okay? Uh, health is that fluid state. You know, they used to say the road to wellness, you know. Health is that fluid state. What we need to do is, like, uh, we need to come into, like, the, the engineering department and say, okay, let's look at your environment. What can we change to make it more capacity building? Where can we take the pressure off? So that's one of the challenges. It's also the challenge, you know, Russ, is always funding, you know, the resources. Because, you know, I asked Dr. Travis, who was the new AVP for UHW recently, what can the university be to all people? At some point, you know, are we supposed to be able to provide everything for people or are we the place where we uh, people come for an education? I always say we don't we create an environment that's conducive for learning. We don't actually educate people. We provide an environment. That's the same thing we need to do with health. We need to provide an environment so people can find their capacity. But we can't keep providing services. You know, prevention is where we need to be in education. I would love to change K-12, Russ, because some of the students that we're getting here are not equipped to deal with some of the 
a huge developmental things that they need to decide about. You know, I have seniors who came up to me last week and said, I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate. And we need to better prepare our students for education. Well, Dennis, it's been great catching up. Just some, some final thoughts as you uh, retire from MSU. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't think. I have been honored, Russ. There's nothing that I've been involved in that hasn't been a, a, a village uh, type of program. Uh, nothing I've done. Uh, I've been fortunate. I've been honored. I've been put in places. Uh, I think sometimes uh, life gave me the, the lack of abilities in certain areas in order to find what I need to do. Like I told you, I haven't made... This is really, other than asking my wife to marry me or deciding to uh, retire, those are the only major decisions I've ever made that didn't seem like it was right. It feels right to be here. It feels uh, kind of sad not to be a full-time employee. But, you know, once you are a Spartan, by that I don't mean athletics or anything, but once you embrace the fundamental principles of a land-grant institution, the fundamental principles is that we care about you, the fundamental principle is you judge the health of a community by its capacity to be good and to be caring that's what it's really all about. You know, I, I uh, honor the day I got to meet you, Russ, uh-huh. because you've been just a wonderful person. And I've always looked forward to your podcast. And, you know, I've followed you. And, and um, I'm so glad that Peter brought you here, <laughs> as well as, you know, KAR and everything yeah. else. You know, having a radio talking book show. And I got to be on, had a show on Impact Radio and stuff. So I'm blessed. You know, it's all about gratitude. I think Michael J. Fox said it well. Is that you know, when you have gratitude, you have hope, and and I'm always have gratitude for being here at MSU. Well said, Dennis. And I and I like our mutual friend Bill Beekman's definition of a Spartan when he says a Spartan is someone who makes their corner of the world a better place. Absolutely, absolutely. So, That's what we're all about. Dennis, congratulations, my friend. And I know we'll talk again. We definitely will. Thank you, Russ. That's Dennis Martell, the health promotion guru, not only at MSU, <laughs> but around the country, who's retiring from MSU, but not leaving completely. And it's great to catch up with him. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.